Krishna, everyone. Welcome to Sunday Inspiration Session. I'd like to greet His Holiness, Krishna Kshetra Swami. Thank you so much for joining us. Hare Krishna, please accept my humble obeisances. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. My name is Gokuletu Mathangu and I'm your host for the session. His Holiness Krishna Kshetra Swami is a teacher, a writer, and traveler. He's a disciple of His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, founder Acharya of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, ISKCON. He has served as a missionary, temple, priest, pujari, and counselor for Bhakti Yoga practitioners from the time of his formal initiation in 1972. From 1972 to 1976, he was based in Germany, the Netherlands, and Denmark. Then he began to participate in Vaishnava missionary activities in Central Europe. Almost every year, from 1978 to 1995, he visited India on pilgrimage. In 1995, as coordinator of a research group, he compiled and published Pancha Ratra Pradipa in two volumes, a manual for Chaitanya Vaishnava Temple Worship. He also served ISKCON's GBC as the Minister for Deity Worship from then until 2005. In 2004, after eight years of university study, resuming his interrupted studies from 1972, he received a PhD degree from the University of Oxford, St. Cross College for his dissertation on Chaitanya Vaishnava image worship, which is now available from Rutledge Publishers as attending Krishna's image, Chaitanya Vaishnava Murti Siva, as devotional truth in 2006. 
Krishna Kshetra Swami is now a research fellow at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. He also teaches at Bhaktivedanta College, Radhadesh, since 2002. He recently taught survey courses in Indian religions and Asian religions in the religion department at the University of Florida, Gainesville. Beginning in September 2007, he began teaching at Chinese University of Hong Kong courses in Indian religion and culture. After a full year of teaching, he then continued to teach one semester per year for the next four years. Since then, he has been giving lectures at several universities in the People's Republic of China. Amidst academic work, he also travels extensively, teaching about spiritual life as comprehended in the Vaishnava devotional Bhakti tradition, coming from Sri Krishna Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Before we start our Sunday inspiration session, we just have a few house rules. Kindly switch and keep your cameras on so we may have a welcoming and personable session. All mics are muted and will remain so until 9.45 EST for questions and comments. And um, please raise your hand to be unmuted and feel free to type your questions and comments on YouTube and Facebook or in the Zoom chat panel as we go along and they will be attended to thereafter. Thank you, Maharaj. We can start our session. Ah, okay. All right, Krishna, thank you for having me on your Sunday Sunday morning program. Uh, good morning to everyone. Thank you all for joining. Uh, I'm happy to be here. And as I understand, I'm being asked to talk about two subjects. Uh, the one that is an announced on the poster is about branding in relation to um, Hinduism. And then this may relate uh, to how a particular book, which I've written and published, is titled. Uh, the title is Cow Care in Hindu animal ethics. Um, but I don't know whether you want to do this more as an interview or you want me more to simply speak. Um, please let me know. Bhaktin Google it. No, Maharaj, um, please uh, feel free to speak. It's not an interview. Share oh. whatever it is. Yes. Okay, um, well, in that case, let me begin with this, the book, uh, and this can be a little bit of a promotion, if you like, uh, because the book is available without charge for digital download. Uh, it's been published in such a way, open access, that um, everyone can download the, whole, the book free of charge, Cow Care in Hindu 
animal ethics. So a little history about how it came that I wrote the book. Uh, you've mentioned that I'm a research fellow of the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. I'm also a fellow of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. And this is a group of scholars. Uh, there are over 100 fellows of this institute uh, all over the world. Um, and the director of this center um, for animal ethics um, requested me more than once, could I please write a book on Hinduism and animal ethics for his book series that he edits uh, with this particular publisher, Palgrave Macmillan. And eventually he convinced me that um, this would be a good thing for me to do. Uh, his specific request uh, was to address what is generally known as Hinduism with respect to animal ethics or the whole subject of how we as human beings relate with how we should relate. Ethics in, in, implies uh, a normative principle, that is a sense of obligation or a sense of what should be done. Uh, and so... Although his initial request to me was for a, a more general book on Hinduism and animal ethics, when I suggested to focus on cows in particular, because um, a very, very major connection is made between or by Hindus uh, with uh, what's called go raksha or cow protection. If I would focus on cows, uh, could we, uh, could I write a book on this subject? And he was very happy for me to do so uh, with this, so to say, condition. It should still connect in some explicit way with Hinduism. So that's what I've done in the book. Uh, at the same time, I make it quite clear in the introduction to the book that the term Hindu uh, is complicated. Um, and so what I am especially interested in uh, in this topic of animal ethics and cows is what is it that is regarded to be so special about cows. Um, and yes, what, what is it that uh, brings this association with Hinduism, especially considering that the scriptures which uh, refer to cows and cow protection uh, and cows as being in some ways special, do not themselves have any 
knowledge of the word Hindu. So, for example, the Bhagavad Gita, we don't find anywhere the word Hindu in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, and for that matter, in the whole of the Mahabharata, nor in the Dharma Shastras, what to speak of the Upanishads and uh, the Ved- Vedic Samhitas. This word doesn't exist uh, at all. And so then we can we can look at the history of the word Hindu, um, which many of you may be familiar with. And now it's become quite, now in recent years, it's become quite uh, commonly known among scholars, uh, the, the history of the term Hindu, and then even much later, the term Hinduism. Uh, as being a Hindu, as being a term of reference by persons outside of the subcontinent uh, of what we now call India, especially in the northwest of India, referring to those on the other side of the Indus River or the Sindhu Uh, as Hindu. And so it was a term not of religion so much as a geographical term of the persons who live in a particular geographical area. Uh, The word Hindu does appear in Chaitanya Charitamrita. So by that means that by the early 17th century, uh, which is to say something less than a century after the disappearance, departure of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, uh, the word Hindu is known and possibly earlier, but it's one of the earliest um, known references of the term Hindu. It's interesting that it's found in our Vaishnava literature. And there it's used in specific contexts to contrast or to make a distinction between uh, those referred to as Hindu and those uh, considered non-Hindu who are referred to generally as Yavana and sometimes as Mlecha. Um, The general sense being that the Hindus are those who follow uh, this uh, so-called social system of Varna and Ashrama and uh, and the others uh, who do not which includes, but is not exclusively uh, referring to uh, Muslims. It can also refer possibly to Adivasis and others of uh, generally uh, identified as having cultural origins outside of uh, the South Indian subcontinent. So that's where we get the word Hindu. And then I haven't 
myself personally dug into this history in detail, but my understanding is the term Hinduism uh, emerged out of uh, the British presence in India, uh, identifying for them a a religious category. Mm-hmm. Uh, this now becomes a category of religion as opposed to a, simply a geographical uh, distinction. And this ties in with um, <laughs> a very complex history of the study of religion, which developed starting in the late 19th century, going into through the 20th century, the, the notion of world religions. Um, Okay, so that's a little about Hindu and Hinduism. And um, we can say, therefore, that both terms have been imported into India and into Indian, um, Indian cultural landscape, if you like. And it's been adopted, it's been accepted, it's been... Um, integrated into Indian Indian thought such that uh, so many people in India now identify themselves as Hindu and identify their religion as Hinduism. Okay, now let's... uh, Let's shift a little bit and look at what Srila Prabhupada said about Hinduism and Hindu. And I'll just speak generally. We could, you know, uh, refer to so many specific quotes, but the general point to be made is simply that Prabhupada did not identify with this term. He did not uh, see himself as Hindu, um, he would, of course, use the term Vaishnava. He would refer to uh, Varnashrama Dharma. He would refer to Sanatana Dharma. And sometimes he would say, we, we are not at all interested in Hinduism or Hindu. Uh, in one conversation, he speaks of so-called Hindus. (laughs) And the general point that he wants to make is that uh, the the designation Hindu is just that. It's a designation, and as such, it is a temporary designation. And he would sometimes uh, include the term Hindu in a list. So he would speak of Christian, Muslim, Hindu, etc., Jewish, uh, uh, perhaps uh, Buddhist, he would refer to. All of these as essentially external to our spiritual identity, our, uh, our permanent identities as uh, as servant of the supreme 
personality of Godhead. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and this understanding is throughout Srila Prabhupada's teachings, which of course he is um, representing, he is repeating what we find in our Vaishnava literature, um, especially, specifically Chaitanya Charitamrita, Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu um, would recite a, a prayer during the uh, Ratha Yatra in Puri, Naham Vipro Nacha Narapatir, Napi Vaishona Shudro, Naham Varni Nacha Griyapatir, Novanas Toyatirva, Kintu Prodyan, Nikila Paramahananda Purnamrita Der Gopi Bartu, Padakamalayor, Dasa, Dasa, Anudasa. Uh, he uh, emphasizes, I am the servant of the servant uh, of the Lord of the gopis, and I am not a Brahman, Kshatriya, Vaisha, Shudra, Brahmachari, Grihasta, Manaprasta, or Sannyasi. <laughs> so he's making that distinction, and this is, of course, our core understanding. Um, And we want to be clear about this for ourselves as practitioners uh, of bhakti yoga. Or put it another way, we may not be entirely clear of this because we do uh, identify ourselves with various temporary designations. Um, This is how it is in this world. Uh, We have grown up with so many designations. So to simply throw them all out the window one morning deciding, okay, I am none of those designations whatsoever, may not happen, it may not, uh, we may find that we are not able to. And furthermore, we understand from Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur that we all have needs on various levels. We have uh, psychological needs, we have social needs, in particular, and especially with respect to social needs, we find it we find it necessary to accept to acknowledge uh, various designations. So we work internally toward going beyond those designations to our our eternal identity as servant of the Lord. And at the same time, we work with various designations to fulfill social needs and obligations with others. And we can say that in particular, the Dharma Shastras are addressing those needs. And so we find in Dharma Shastra, and I would say more broadly, the 
um, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana also are very much addressing these needs and uh, addressing the Purushartas, which we all, as long as we have material bodies, uh, will be concerned with Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha. All of these concerns will be there. And in the context of recognizing these needs, we may find it necessary, uh, we may find it sometimes beneficial for us to identify uh, with specific uh, social or we can say religious designations. An example of this uh, is in relation to something I've just uh, finished writing about. Um, I was commissioned to write an article on ISKCON and the Hindu diaspora. So I had to think a lot about this particular subject. Uh, and part of my focus of that article is a bit of history about Bhaktivedanta Manor, uh, the very significant establishment temple uh, just outside of London, uh, northwest of London. And again, as some of you may know, uh, they had quite some struggle over a period of overall about 10 years uh, from 1986 to 1996, they had quite some struggle with the local village um, um, people, residents, and uh, this was over the fact that more and more visitors were coming to Bhaktivedanta Manor, uh, the vast majority of whom were Hindu diaspora, that is, coming from Indian background um, and having uh, Indian ancestral origin, although many of them were coming from East Africa more immediately. These were immigrants to the UK. More and more were coming, and they were parking their cars all around the village. It's a quite small village. Um, and this was becoming a disturbance. And so they started making complaints. And one thing led to another. It's a long story. One scholar has written an entire book uh, just on this subject. The point being that uh, the devotees, in order to defend their position uh, of allowing people to come visit, uh, to have darshan of Shishi Radha Gokulananda, they took a great deal of help from <clears throat> the Hindu community. Put another way, in some sense, they... Uh, the manor in their, what came to be called the manor campaign, 
in effect, uh, were very instrumental in creating a Hindu community in Great Britain, uh, bringing a kind of self-consciousness to them, which um, had been, let's say, more fragmented uh, with uh, the various, anyway, uh, coming from different, yeah, from different castes, uh, different jatis, having other kinds of identification perhaps than Hindu as such. So the manor found that in order to defend themselves, they needed to um, to mobilize people in such a way that uh, the officials would take uh, the, mm, the position of the manor seriously. And they were very successful. And it's also quite interesting how that, how it happened. Uh, much of this campaign, Pain was spearheaded by the Hindu youth, young people, uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, uh, when they became alerted to the danger that Bhaktivedanta Manor would be closed, they said, we're going to fight this. And how they fought, they were very... Uh, enthusiastic and uh, creative. They went into the village square, the public village square uh, of this village, Lechmore Heath, and uh, they set up an altar <laughs> with pictures of Krishna and uh, I don't know if they had deities, Gornitai, but they, they made like a temporary altar and performed a public worship of Krishna in the public square. And they had signs they, that were saying, you know, we are being thrown out of our temple. We're not being allowed to worship in our temple. So we don't have a place to worship. So we're going to we're doing it here. <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> and so this, you know, this called media attention and uh, one thing led to another. Uh, there was, you know, there were court cases, legal, back and forth, lawyers. Uh, this went on for 10 years. And eventually concluded with a completely amicable uh, solution. Bhaktivedanta Manor was given the opportunity to purchase additional land uh, in the back of their property, enabling, enabling them to make an access road from, a, from another road so that uh, people would not have to come through the village and would not have to park uh, in the village. So it was a completely happy solution, ultimately, for everyone. Since then, um, residents of the village have come to be quite friendly uh, with uh, the manor. The manor has made a, a very, uh, how to say, they've been very focused to encourage, uh, they invite 
uh, the villagers, they have special days when they invite them and they have nice programs with them and so on. Okay, all of that was simply to make this point that sometimes in some circumstances, uh, it may be completely appropriate uh, for devotees of Krishna to, (laughs) the term branding is used, so I'll use that also, to brand themselves as Hindu. Um, Yeah, another example of this we may mention uh, in Oxford, we have the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. Uh, It began as the Oxford Center for uh, Vaishnava Studies. But then uh, the well-wishers, well-wishers of our center from Oxford University said, you know, um, nobody knows what is Vaishnava, uh, but people know the word Hindu. Mm-hmm. So then we said, okay, we'll, we'll make it the center for Vaishnava and Hindu studies. So for some time, we were the center for Vaishnava and Hindu studies. But still, this question would come up, okay, Hindu, yes, I know something vaguely, but Vaishnava, what is this Vaishnava? That's something different from Hindu? And then this called for uh, explanations that would sometimes leave people no more enlightened than before the conversation. So then finally it was decided, okay, Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. And within the Center for Hindu Studies, one of the focus, foci, that we have is Vaishnav Studies. We also have scholars who study Shaktism or Shaivism uh, or uh, so many other uh, different sorts or aspects of Hindu traditions. So... So that's way, one, one possible way of understanding. Um, perhaps, though, I should get back to the book uh, that started all of this, Cow Care in Hindu Animal Ethics. As most of uh, you who are listening will know, Srila Prabhupada did put a lot of emphasis on cow protection, and he quoted Bhagavad Gita that uh, one of the functions of Vaishyas is Goraksha. And he encouraged devotees uh, to establish farm communities, uh, which should have as integral uh, to those projects, there should be cows. And these cows uh, were to be uh, maintained very nicely, uh, to be cared for nicely, and uh, to be kept uh, throughout their natural lives. Uh, The cows would uh, give milk. The bulls uh, would uh, be trained to pull the plow such that grains could be Uh, grown, and thus he said, essentially, if you have these two uh, products, grains and milk, uh, you are 
prosperous. So there have been attempts and there are still ongoing um, projects of cow protection in our society. Uh, the, the more recent count of the total number of cows presently in ISKCON is about 5,000. Uh, of these, around 4,000 are in India and the remaining 1,000 are scattered amongst uh, altogether uh, some, how many did we count, uh, close to 100 projects worldwide uh, where cows are cared for. Again, most of them being in India. Well, um, my part of my impetus for writing this book was the feeling that despite the fact that we have so many strong statements from Srila Prabhupada that this is important, there is an, and despite the fact that uh, other devotees have written more on the subject of the importance of cow protection. I felt there's still some uh, something to be done in this area, namely, um, for lack of a better word, uh, a more academic uh, study of the history. I should say also the prehistory uh, of cows, uh, what I prefer to call cow care in uh, Hindu or in Indian uh, traditions, and to give a survey of what are the challenges and what are the mm, what are the positive aspects of present day cow care. For that purpose, I spent some time mm, mainly in India traveling in North India, visiting Goshalas, uh, some one very large Goshala in the southwest of uh, Rajasthan, Patmeda. Uh, other Goshalas, much smaller, a few hundred cows or uh, one, one Goshala in uh, Gurugram, that Sugopi Tunga Vidya, uh, Devi knows. Uh, we visited there together. They have some 3,000 cows. Um, some ISKCON projects, uh, including Shida Mayapur, which has something over 300 cows, cows meaning cows and bulls. And also addressing some of the issues uh, of cow protection, especially the economics. Um, which I touch on in quite minimal way to seriously uh, delve into the economics would have to be another book, uh, probably requiring someone with more expertise in the area of agricultural economics than I would uh, have. Uh, so... I also wanted to sketch out what would be uh, 
the ideal situation of cow, cow care and cow protection. And this I do in the final, uh, final chapter or next to final chapter. Um, no, it's, what is it, the final? Final minus one concluding chapter. Um, and I did this, maybe I can end uh, what I'm speaking now uh, before we take questions. I have a, a section called Six Affirmations on the Dharma of Cow Care. And I can just quickly go through these six affirmations. You may know this term affirmation is sometimes used as a psychological uh, process to help oneself um, to develop good habits of thought in particular. So I, I frame this as affirmations. The first being titled Cow Care and Care. Um, um, so I put this in a sort of present tense, although it's not really happening. I say, this is what's happening. So I say, we have instituted a certification system through a network similar to that of worldwide organic farming to monitor and ensure that all institutions and individuals who care for cows and wish to have the monitoring agency's seal of approval must follow minimum standards summarized in the five basic rules of care system for lifetime care of animals. Now, this five basic rules of the care system has been proposed by uh, another scholar in Germany <clears throat> who has done some very interesting uh, research on this subject. Um, I'll, I'll jump to the next. I elaborate more on that first one, but I'm just uh, giving a little taste. The second one, uh, second principle of affirmation is cow care and fairness. <clears throat> a comprehensive monitoring system ensures that any physical products or byproducts from bovines are obtained only under strict conditions of respectful and caring treatment. I mention this because one of the uh, criticisms of uh, the vegan movement against uh, those who take dairy, even against those who take dairy from only protected cows, is that the cows are not really properly treated. So what I'm saying in this book is um, it's possible to treat cows as mother, as Prabhupada would so many times say, the cow is our mother. So to have a, a to really have that understanding and then to see the bull as father, uh, to have that understanding 
uh, is a prerequisite for what we are talking about in terms of cow care. Then the third principle is cow care and liberty, where I say cow care activists recognize that all people are at liberty to follow the diet of their choice within various sorts of constraints. So we're not, we're not making some kind of, uh, how to say, like a fascist demand. Um, we say, if they are accustomed to eating meat, we encourage them and explain reasons for reducing meat consumption and we appreciate and applaud the work of any environmental activism that explicitly confronts the environmental cost of carnism. And of course, the idea is to help people to, to shift from carnism, from a diet uh, that is uh, based on meat or is including meat to a vegetarian diet. Um, and I say also, mm, we also urge anyone consuming dairy to source their dairy products from cow care families and institutions that are authorized based on the first principle that I gave, that they have a seal of approval that they're properly caring for the cows. Persons unable to source ahimsa dairy are encouraged to move toward this goal in a progressive manner. And I have a footnote which elaborates what that progressive manner would be. But I'll, I'll go now to the fourth principle, which is cow care and loyalty. Uh, all of these um, principles are with respect to um, a particular scholar's analysis of six fundamental principles of, uh, of morality which enter into the political sphere. And that's why I'm using them because there's a lot of politics around cow care. So cow care and loyalty says, loyalty of cow carers to their own nations is encouraged, as is loyalty to their particular communities. Dharma-based cow carer culture is such that these loyalties are not energized by antagonism against other nations or communities. What I want to say here is that um, people in India who want to protect cows, that's fine. Uh, you want to identify yourself as Indian, that's fine. Uh, it's quite... Um, reasonable, and it's reasonable to feel loyalty to the nation. You want to feel yourself as identifying with uh, being Hindu, so making yourself a member of a Hindu community. That's also fine. 
what I'm saying with this is that does not give a basis. Um, I protect cows and therefore I am antagonistic as a Hindu, as an India, against those who don't protect cows. I may not approve, I may deplore, but I cannot make them my enemies. This is the basic principle that uh, Gandhi articulated, Mahatma Gandhi. Rather, by caring for cows, these persons <clears throat> make a deep connection with the earth and their environment in such ways that they cultivate knowledge in the quality of goodness and illumination, um, as described in Bhagavad Gita, and I give some quotes. Um, in turn, this knowledge nurtures cow carers' dedication to the bovines in their charge. So we're still talking about loyalty. Um, for uh, such that they do all that is necessary for the bovines, the cows, in their charge, uh, sorry, bovines, to be cared for properly for life, thus never to have their trust in their carers betrayed. So loyalty means that the cows are uh, given reasons to give their trust to their carers. So they will never be betrayed by, uh, by their carers. And again, I have more on that subject. Uh, the fifth one is cow care and authority. Authority in relation to cow care is specifically located first and foremost in persons with extensive experience in all aspects of cow care, including cow-based organic agriculture. Indeed, these persons are recognized and accredited as teachers of cow care in learning institutions connected with cow care centers and cow-based organic farms and village communities throughout the world. And some more elaboration on that. Um, I spe speak about uh, processes and institutions of education, how, how that could uh, develop. And that's something we are beginning in the Ministry for Cow Protection and Agriculture, ISCON's ministry. Um, uh, some work is being done on, on uh, course, courses where you can learn um, how to manage a goshala, for example. And so it's not a matter of just, oh, bhakta so-and-so, um, you're not very good on book distribution. Let's put you in charge of the goshala. No. First, you have to be trained. Um, so where do I get the training? Well, presently... <laughs> It's kind of hit and miss. So we want to uh, provide that training. And six, the final point, and then I will stop, uh, final affirmation, is cow care and sanctity. 
Those who care for cows regard them as bearers of sanctity in that they are unique in their ways of creaturely being in the world such that humans can care for them. For many Hindus, cows are special because they are regarded as especially dear to the supreme divinity, Krishna. Therefore, they are practiced to give cows special attention. Such special attention is not at the cost of other creatures. Indeed, in the, in the bovine family, Krishna is said to have a pet buffalo. And I quote uh, Gandhi here, he says, quote, we can realize our duty toward the animal world and discharge it by wisely pursuing our dharma of service to the cow. At the root of cow protection, Gandhi says, is the realization of our dharma toward the subhuman species. Unquote. And I go on with a bit more uh, to that sixth principle. Okay, that's a little bit about cow care in Hindu animal ethics. Uh, you can read the whole book. You can search the title and you will find uh, the publisher's website on which is a button to click. You can also order the hardbound or now also softbound is available. Um, but open access, free download, digital is available, and you can read the whole book. And um, I'm always happy to get feedback on the book uh, to hear. Um, constructive criticism is always welcome. Hare Krishna. I think I should stop there and see if there's some question or some discussion. Yes, um, thank you so much, Maharaj, for the Sunday inspiration and for encouraging us to start our food communities where we grow our own foods. And um, I personally related to that the most because I just love agriculture. <laughs> Oh. Um, okay, so <laughs> okay, so um, we're just going to give 15 minutes um, for Q&A. So if there's anyone who wants to um, say something to Maharaj or ask or comment, please, you can unmute yourself and ask or rather just uh, send a text or question on the chat box. Um, I, I see already Savia such a proposed question. Okay. Okay, Maharaj, you can. Okay, um, I will read it. Hare Krishna Maharaj, thank you for your lucid class. Question one How do we remedy a situation where the Krishna consciousness movement is catering almost entirely to those who identify culturally as Hindus and creating an isolating atmosphere? for those who come in and do not culturally identify as Hindus? Yes, that's a very good question, and it's very well put. 
to reply to this, I'm going to quote uh, from a sannyasi godbrother of mine who has thought about this carefully and who has um, written about it. And it's just one, one paragraph. It goes like this. The problem with ISKCON temples that have predominantly Indian-born congregations is not that they are exclusively projecting Indian culture and values, but that there's a lack of diversity in the community, and that has made Westerners uncomfortable. Also, those temples, if their objective is to indeed create a diverse congregation, seem to lack some understanding of how and when to present the elements of Indian culture and tradition that Srila Prabhupada introduced. This holds equally true for temples in the West whose members are not predominantly Indian and are also unsuccessful in expanding their Western-born base. Um, of course, he's speaking, uh, this was written in uh, United States and looking at that situation, South Africa. I don't know the situation. I've never been to South Africa. Uh, but perhaps in some respects, uh, this applies. As you may or may not know, uh, there has been a lot of discussion on this issue and some efforts are made. Um, um, you may know of uh, the Krishna West project, uh, which uh, was started by His Holiness Vidyananda Goswami. Uh, he has been specifically um, trying to uh, sort of shift uh, the uh, how to say, the, uh, the center of gravity. I would put it like this, to, to shift the cultural sense, center of gravity away from what he sees as non-essentials of Indian culture, non-essential to Krishna consciousness. Um, and he has a website, and you can see... Um, or they have a website, I should say, uh, what sorts of things they are doing. But also, and this may be more relevant for Africa, I don't know if um, they are also active in South Africa, but um, there is the uh, International Institute for Applied Spiritual Technology. Um, I think they're in in West Africa, but I don't know about South Africa, it's, uh, <clears throat> the late His Holiness uh, Bhakti Tirta Swami started uh, the Institute for Applied Spiritual Technology uh, in Washington, D.C., and he had a similar concern uh, that 
Okay, we're attracting many people of Indian origin. Um, that's all right. That's how to say we want everyone uh, to to take up Krishna consciousness. Um, but what about everyone else and him himself coming from African American background? He was also specifically concerned about Africa, and as you probably know very well, he was very uh, successful in his uh, preaching in Africa, including South Africa. So I don't, you probably know more about uh, that history than I do. Um, to, to, to shift uh, the, I think what we want to do, because I spoke in this article, I wrote in this article about cultural atmosphere, where sort of different groups are sharing a cultural atmosphere. What I see is the need to make more space, to make the atmosphere inclusive, and to show that, indeed, Krishna is for everyone. Uh, this is what Srila Prabhupada said in one conversation in Bhaktivedanta Manor, which I also quote. He says, Krishna is for everyone. Uh, the more we meditate on that mantra, if you like, I think Krishna will give us intelligence uh, how to how to make adjustments in details. We don't want to change any principles, but details can be adjusted for the purpose of attracting people to Krishna. And I think the more we recognize that, the more we see how to, um, how details can be adjusted without uh, jeopardizing principles, and without being in anxiety that we're rejecting principles, uh, the more progress we can make. It's a big topic, so <laughs> I'll be brief. Okay, thank you so much, Maharaj. Savi, I hope that answers your question. We have a hand raised from Saradia Rasa. Saradia, do you want to unmute your mic or show yourself and ask a question? Hare Krishna. My signal is not that great, so I'm just going to stay off um, camera. But thank you for allowing me to ask the question. Um, Maharaj, firstly, thank you very much for your talk. I especially appreciated everything that you've done, you know, for cow protection. And I, uh, you know, I do think it's definitely an essential aspect that we need to take much more seriously mm. and give much more attention to in the future. So for that, I'm very grateful. Um, at the same time, um, I want to play a bit of a devil's advocate role. And I think what is important is that we need to acknowledge that when devotees or ISKCON, you know, uses that Hindu identity, it mm -hmm. might serve certain causes and serve certain groups. But I think <clears throat> we cannot deny the fact that it excludes others. I personally lived in the UK and I was part of the Bhaktivedanta Manor community, and I, I'm also aware of the history, and I understand why in that particular instance, you know, it was um, 
really serving the cause to take on that identity. But right. at the same time, there's been repercussions for that. If we look at that community, it yeah. is, you know, almost hundred percent exclusively Indian. Yeah. And I, I've lived there and there is only like a small generation, you know, of devotees who are not only Indian and many gener- generations in between, there's basically like no Europeans. Yeah. And the ones that are there are usually from Russia or from Eastern Europe. And on several occasions, I met, um, I met, you know, local people, older local people, and they said exact same thing for me, although they were not connected to each other. And, you know, it was different occasions. And every single one said to me, I've been coming to the temple for many years. And I, you know, I love the devotees. I love Kirtan. I love Prashadam, but I cannot become a Hare Krishna. And when I asked them why, they said because it's a Hindu religion. So right. by taking on that identity, they've they have effectively excluded and also I would say even alienated the local population. And I mean in, in the UK, which is very cosmopolitan, we're not only talking about like people of European descent, but also everyone else. So yeah. I'm I, I just think that is important. We cannot ignore that yeah. there might be some gain, but there's also a loss. There's and a I lot. think we have to start acknowledging, you know, who that identity is excluding. Thank and you. I don't think it's, it's not only, it's not only in the UK that that's happening. Yeah. So I think that is something that needs to be discussed more openly yeah. Yeah. and addressed more openly. And we have to consider what is it doing to ISKCON's identity? Yes. Thank you. You've said it well. I agree completely with everything you've said. Uh, and I don't think I could add anything without sort of veering off and taking up time, which we don't have. Um, I think the key is two words you said, acknowledging uh, and or maybe acknowledging, you said, we need to acknowledge this uh, and then see, we need to discuss so what do we do about it? What's interesting, though, is I've also met um, Indian uh, origin devotees in the UK who are members of this uh, manor community who are exactly concerned in the same way. They say, you know, we, we don't want to just be Hindu. We are... Um, it has to be for everyone. Krishna is for everyone. And they're, they're very concerned about this. So that's also there. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Saradia, for your comments and um, observations. We also have um, another, we have another question, Maharaj, that from, sorry, I'm just scrolling up. Um, oh, from Pandava, he says, Maharaj, you mentioned Chaitanya Charitamrita, that, t- that term Hindu is found for the first time. Can you tell where is it? Oh, um, well, first, I I'm not sure it's completely the first time. I know it's one of the first. It's one of the earliest uh, because... Um, one scholar uh, who spent decades studying Gaudiya Vaishnavism, a Western scholar, pointed this out. Um, but it's one of the earliest. 
in um, one place is in the uh, discussion between Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and the Kazi. That's the one I can be fairly sure it's there. It's been a while since I've looked at this, but uh, the places to look are where there's any interaction with, um, and the term Muslim is never used. Uh, The term Yavana is used, um, and Mlecha, and Prabhupada sometimes translates as meat eaters, (laughs) the meat eaters. (laughs) Um, so look in those uh, places, and there you may find the word Hindu in the in the Bengali. Okay, I uh, hope that answers your question, Pandava. We're going to move on to Dira Lalita. She just made a comment and said that she's sorry she has to go to work, but she'd like to thank you, Maharaj, for the class and the devotees from Africa who organized it. Mm-hmm. And then we have um, Sugopi. She says that the beauty of ISKCON is that we have so many different communities from across the world, and it is our responsibility to maintain this beauty by acting together as a big family, which I agree with. Thank you so much, Sugopi. I couldn't, I couldn't say it better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sugopi, for that. Um, Mandla is saying, Hare Krishna Maharaj, please accept my humble obeisances. We usually hear that the Hindu title has no formal existence or appearance in the revealed scriptures. That is a collective misnomer that cannot properly define the experience of said Hinduism. Is it not safe to say that the institution of Hinduism does indeed exist? and therefore defined itself as given description by the misnomer itself. <laughs> uh, it's true that uh, what it, it's an interesting phenomenon that something which uh, previously was diffuse um, gets, a, gets a designation, and then the designation catches on and becomes uh, a force for crystallizing um, what people then understand to be Hinduism. <laughs> so that's happened very much uh, uh, in, from the 19th century on. That's happened in India very much as a, as a response to, very much as a reaction to, um, colonialism, British colonialism. So we could say, you know, if we wanted to put dates on it, we could say it, it started with Ramohan Roy uh, in the early 19th century. He was concerned um, and and he decided to, he, he felt that um, what was being practiced in India and was being labeled more or less as Hindu, he felt a lot of it was not proper Hinduism. He pretty much threw out all of the Puranas and said the real Hinduism is in the Upanishads. And then he established his uh, his organization, the Brahma Samaj, 
and that's another long history. And then uh, philosophically, in the later 19th century and into uh, the early 20th century, there was a felt need to have a sort of clear Hindu theology, and it came about, and that's been written about, scholars have um, I know one scholar has written a book on this subject of how it happened that Hinduism, so-called, became identified with Advaita Vedanta. That's also a recent development, and it developed through specific writings of specific persons uh, with a specific purpose. Uh, they w wanted something that could be, shall we say, easily packaged uh, for the wider world. That was that was their idea. <laughs> that's a that's a, that's a there's a history to all of that. Okay, um, so much more could be said, but Hare Krishna. <laughs> Hare Krishna. Thank you so much, Maharaj, for your time, for your knowledge, and thank you to everybody who joined us. Um, and thank you for having me. Thank you so much. We just want to remind the devotees to follow you, Maharaj. Um, Maharaja can be found on social media at Kenneth uh, Valpi. Am I saying that right? On yes. Facebook and at Krishna Kshetra Swami underscore official in Instagram, where you can like and follow his page. You can also visit his website at www.krks.name to find out more and keep up with his work and various projects. You can also kindly visit, like, share, and follow WUSA's social media platforms that include Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at WUSA108. Please help us get a thousand follows and subscriptions and more. And we also would like to thank you guys for your support. We're also happy to announce that our morning Japa sessions are back. So the details around the daily program will be communicated in the WUSA weekly WhatsApp group. You can join the weekly WhatsApp group via link at www.wusa.online so that you can receive regular activity updates and communications. Um, NB, this group is for quick announcements and will not be used for spam, so only admins will post in the group. We are also happy and excited to announce that our books are, yeah, our books are the basis Book club, sorry, is up and running. So catch us every Thursday evening for the jam-packed reading and sharing our realization sessions via Zoom. Visit www.wusa.online to find out more and join the WUSA weekly WhatsApp group to keep updated and participate in this exciting program. Um, on that note, a quick update on the fundraiser for the WUSA Preaching Initiative. The San Kirtan bus has been ticked off the WUSA wish list. And the WUSA house yoga is nearing completion. So we'd just like to thank everyone who opened their hearts out to donate towards this um, preaching effort. The bus was the first item 
on the WUSA wish list of items needed to mobilize the preaching effort. We still have a long way to go, so please kindly visit www.wusa.online to download the wish list from our donations page and our sites. For more information, you're welcome to contact us via email at admin at wusa.online. So thank you, everybody, for the class. Thank you, Maharaj. And this is where we end our lovely Sunday inspiration. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maharaj. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Usa, wake up South Africa. Usa, wake up South Africa. You've been sleeping far too long. Wake up South Africa Now come along and sing this song Wake up South Africa